0: Bye. Thank you, handbells, for ushering us into worship this morning. That was beautiful. And doesn't the uh, altar look wonderful this morning? Thank you to the ladies. Yes, thank you to the ladies who put that together, do such a wonderful job with it every year. It's such such a joy to have that in worship this morning as well. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship at Faith Community United Methodist Church. Uh, If you would, please find the attendance pads and fill those out and pass those along with others worshiping with you. This is Coins for Missions Sunday. The blue buckets are out in the narthex, on the tables in the narthex, uh, for your coins uh, that support our various mission projects. If you didn't drop your coins in on your way in this morning, you can drop them in on your way out of the sanctuary this morning to uh, help support our missions. We do that uh, the second Sunday of every month. We collect those Coins for Missions. Today is the day to pick up your ham loaves, and uh, that is down in the fellowship hall right after worship, or all morning you can go down there to pick up your ham loaves. I'm told that we also have some uh, kitchen towels for sale, so if you uh, need some, some kitchen towels, check that out as well. If you didn't pre-order your ham loaves, there are a limited number of extras, so uh, you can go down and check that out and see if you can uh, get some even if you didn't order them. There are a couple of things in our bulletin about ways that we are uh, reaching out in love to, to our neighbors uh, in need. Our Thanksgiving challenge, providing food for a Thanksgiving feast for, for the families of this area through the Fish Food Pantry. Uh, you have the announcement about the needs for that. Uh, also, our St. Paul's Christmas trees. There's a Christmas tree out in the Narthex Uh, with tags on it for gifts that you can purchase and bring in uh, for the children at St. Paul's to to go shopping, to select presents for their families. Uh, So the instructions and the list of items are out there for you to take and bring those back uh, as soon as possible. Those all need to be in by November 28th so that the uh, kids have time to do their shopping. We have our uh, annual church conference this Thursday evening at 6.30 in the Fellowship Hall. Uh, this is uh, an annual meeting of our congregation to, to deal with some, some business, and uh, it's a church conference, so all of the members of the church uh, have a voice and a vote at that meeting. So you're invited 6.30 for our church conference. Uh, you have a, an extra insert in your bulletin this morning. One side has uh, the announcement of our Thanksgiving community worship service. We are hosting a community worship service here next Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so you are invited to join us for that. We're going to be joining with uh, people from a number of other congregations uh, coming together uh, in worship at three o'clock for Thanksgiving. And then uh, on the other side of that is an announcement about Dr. Dillaplane's retirement from the uh, Board of Education celebration for that. So make sure you take this insert home with you so that you can put both of these things on your calendar and join us for those. We are uh, here to worship our God, and so I invite you in. an attitude of worship, and I invite you to stand as you are able for the call to worship printed in bulletin.
1: Good morning, and we'll join together in our call to worship. Come, let us present ourselves before our God. Bring all your troubles and anxiety to God in prayer.
0: Surely God knows our thoughts and hears our prayers. We find strength for living as we praise God.
1: Lay down your arrogance and false pride. Admit your needs as you seek God's favor.
0: We pour out our souls before the living God. We do not withhold from God
1: our misery and distress. God grants our petitions and gives us peace. The counsel of our God gladdens our hearts.
0: In God's presence, fullness of joy. As we meet together, we are encouraged and comforted.
1: And we'll join together in singing our opening hymn, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, number 117. seated and let us join together in our opening prayer our hearts exalt in you O God all knowledge has its origin in you our deepest hungers are satisfied as you give counsel and instruct our hearts be known to us now that our covenant with you may be strengthened Give confidence to all who enter this sanctuary, that our faith may grow, our love expand, and our hope find fulfillment. Show us the path of life and grant us courage to walk in your ways. Amen. And our prayer hymn is number 512, Stand By Me.
0: pray. Oh, Lord, do please stand by us. That is why we come here this day, because we know we are in such desperate need of you, Lord. As the storms of life are raging around us, as we stand in the midst of tribulation, even through all of our faults and failures, Lord, You stand beside us. You go in front of us. You follow behind us. You surround us with your loving presence, Lord. And you strengthen us for this day and for the days ahead. We thank you, Lord, for your enduring presence. We thank you for your power and for your love. That we can trust you in all things. And so in that confidence and in that faith, we lift up to you our prayers, our pleas for those who are going through times of trial right now, those who are suffering illness, those who are struggling in other ways. Lord, we lift them all up to you in this time of silent prayer. Lord, we thank you, for we know that you have heard our prayers. We know that you do indeed heed our prayers. Thank you, Lord, for answered prayers, even before we receive the answer, because we know that the answer we receive is the best, the best for us, even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it, Lord, you know what's best, and you deliver that without fail. Lord, you bring us through every trial. You win every single battle. And so win the battles now that are before us. We pray to you for this congregation, this church family that you have brought together to minister to one another, to reach out to this community with your love. And we pray, Lord, that all that we do might be to that purpose. The ministries that we do through our, our Thanksgiving giving and through the presence that we bring for the children at St. Paul's and through the missions that we support through our coins and through buying the ham loaves, Lord, we pray that all of this might meet some need in this community. And through that met need, someone might know that you are Lord, that you are a loving God. Lord, continue to work through us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, as we offer to you now the prayer that he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I invite the ushers forward now as they pass the offering plates. We present ourselves to God through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. Please join me in the prayer of dedication. Our hearts are glad and our souls rejoice in the opportunity to share. Here are the fruits of your generosity and our hard work. In thanks for the perfect offering of Jesus Christ, we bring ourselves with our gifts. Show us how to combine our efforts to build wholesome relationships, extend your church, and minister in your name throughout the world. Amen. Please be seated.
1: What a blessing we have to have that bell choir here at Faith. As is our custom, would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Which is taken this Sunday from the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, and tells of the destruction of the temple. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, What large stones and what large buildings? Then Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. The word of God for the people of God.
0: Thanks be to God. Amen. may be seated. It would be hard to overemphasize the importance of the temple to the Jewish people who were living prior to and during the first century. The promise of a temple goes all the way back to the time of Moses, when God delivered the chosen people from their captivity in Egypt and led them through the wilderness toward the promised land. When God gave Moses the Torah, the law, he gave instructions for building a tabernacle, a portable but elaborate tent for God's presence to dwell with them as they traveled through the wilderness. And once they were firmly established in the promised land, that tabernacle would be replaced by a permanent temple, a place where the people could bring their sacrifices and offerings day in and day out, knowing that God was in their midst, trusting that God was in control, believing that God had made a way for them to be forgiven and cleansed and reconciled to him through the ministries of the temple, which was the center of their religious life. They didn't always have this temple. They lived in the promised land for about 300 years before they even had a king, all of that time without a temple. Their first king, Saul, he had no temple built. Their second king, David, he moved the capital to Jerusalem, but he was not allowed to build the temple either. It was David's son, Solomon, who finally had the temple built in Jerusalem. The reign of Solomon was the glorious height of the Jewish monarchy, and the construction of the temple was the fulfillment of that promise that had been made hundreds of years earlier. For decades, the Jewish people had looked forward to the day when they would have a temple upon which the center of their religious devotion would be found. That temple, that, that first temple, Solomon's temple, lasted almost 400 years. In the year 586 B.C., Jerusalem was ransacked by the Babylonians under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. The temple was destroyed, completely wiped away. The people of Judah were carried away from the promised land into exile. They lost their homes, they lost their lands, they lost their temple. They, they almost lost their identity as God's chosen people. But through the prophets, they came to believe that God had not completely abandoned them. Indeed, that God was with them even in Babylon, just as he had been with them in Egypt all those centuries ago. That through this time of exile, he would redeem them and return them to the promised land once again. That's exactly what happened about 40 years later when the Persians under King Cyrus defeated the Babylonians, and Cyrus decreed that the Jewish exiles could return to their homeland and rebuild their temple. So in 515 BC, the second temple was completed. Those who were old enough to remember the first temple considered the second one inferior in many ways, but still the Jewish people had that place to center their worship once again. Once again, they they had that visible representation of God's presence among them and God's forgiveness and restoration upon them. That period of time from 515 B.C. right up through 70 A.D. is known as Second Temple Judaism. However, the temple at the time of Jesus was not really the second temple, but the third. The second temple had always been considered somewhat inferior in terms of size and grandeur. And besides that, it had suffered much devastation under the terrible reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Who had, among other things, set up statues to false gods in the sanctuary, right there in the heart of the temple, and sacrificed pigs on the altar. Following his reign, the temple was both decimated and defiled. Until the time of King Herod. Yes, the same King Herod that we meet at the beginning of the Gospels, the one who. Received the wise men from the east and learned of the birth of the new king of the Jews, and who had all the children under two killed in an effort to protect his own power. Herod is the one who decided to replace the decimated and defiled temple with a much larger and grander structure. Around the year 20 BC, that construction began, and the main structure was completed about a year and a half later. Assuming, as most scholars do, that Jesus was born around the year 4 B.C., then the temple to which Mary and Joseph took Jesus for his dedication as an infant was pretty much a brand new temple. The biggest parts of it had only been there for about 14 years, and the auxiliary adornments would continue to be worked, out, worked on throughout his lifetime. That temple, the, the third temple, the one that Jesus visited numerous times throughout his life, and at least three times the week before his death, lasted less than 90 years. Begun in 20 B.C., it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., never to be rebuilt. Still to this day, all that remains of that temple is the Western Wall, known as the Wailing Wall, a place of pilgrimage even to this day. And when you look at the Wailing Wall, you, you can get a bit of a sense of what the disciples might have felt what they were expressing when they said to Jesus, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. The stones that, that, made up, that make up the wall are, are truly immense. Some of the foundation stones have been measured as much as 42 feet by 11 feet by 14 feet and weigh as much as 500 tons, 500 tons tons. Uh, Imagine, in a day before any modern machinery, moving a 500-ton stone and putting it into place. The disciples were overwhelmed by the sight. And that was the point of the construction. That's why Herod had it built the way that he did. This was the home of God. It, It had to impress beyond compare. And not only did it look impressive beyond compare, it looked permanent. The first temple had been destroyed. The second temple had been decimated and defiled. But this temple, this temple was built to last. This temple was going to stand forever. That's what the faithful people in Jesus's day thought. All along, the temple in Jerusalem had been the center of their identity. When the temple was there, they rejoiced and found their place with God there. And when the temple wasn't there, they grieved and they longed for the day when it would be restored. And now, now they finally had a temple that was worthy of them as God's people and worthy of the Lord as their God. Finally, they had a temple to which the Messiah would come and reign over their nation forever. Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. In other words, isn't this an impressive place to claim your kingdom? Isn't this a worthy location for you to take up residence? Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. That was not a popular thing to say about a structure that was the center of their identity and was built to stand Forever especially a building that they believed to be the home of God. When Jesus was arrested and put on trial just a couple of days later, one of the main charges against him was that he said he would destroy the temple. Of course, that's not at all what Jesus had said, but no matter, the idea that Jesus would prophesy against so magnificent and so holy of a place as the temple was scandalous, a scandal that the religious authorities could not let pass unpunished the disciples asked Jesus privately about this statement they had to ask him privately because they knew what a dangerous thing this was to be talking about the Jewish people had lost their temple before and now that they finally had it restored to the magnificence that it was always meant to have they were not about to lose it again they would do anything to protect this temple to speak of its imminent destruction was a dangerous topic of conversation, so they asked him privately. Mark tells us that they asked him about this when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. That phrase, opposite the temple, it's more than just geographical. They, they were not just sitting on the opposite side of a valley from the temple. Jesus, with his words and his actions of that week, had set himself in opposition to the temple. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, he also sat in opposition to the temple. No longer would he tolerate the misuse of God's house. No longer would he condone religious practices that justified the unjust power structures of this world. No longer would he allow a building to stand in place of a contrite heart and a living faith in God. No longer would a sacrificial system be allowed to stand when he, Jesus, he was making the ultimate and only sacrifice needed for all time. As Jesus sat opposite the temple, his disciples asked him, tell us, when will this be? What will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? Their true question, though, what they were really asking had to do, it, it had to do with the, the destruction of, of the temple. This was simple and, and straightforward answer to this question would be in about 40 years. In about 40 years is when the Romans would wage war on the Jews and wipe out Jerusalem once again. The temple would be knocked down with only a part of one wall remaining. It would never be rebuilt again, at least not for the next two millennia. But that's not how Jesus answers their question. That's not how Jesus answers because he knows that their question runs deeper than just the physical structure of the temple. What they're really asking about are the end times, the end of this present age, because that's what they assumed was signaled by the destruction of the temple. If this temple, which was meant to last for the rest of history, was going to be destroyed then history itself must be coming to an end. When will this happen, they asked Jesus. What will be the signs? That's what they were they're really asking. And, and so it's to that question that Jesus directs his answer. But his answer turns out to be not so much of an answer to that question. When he named some signs that were commonly understood to be signs of the end times, wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines. All of these things were were popular in apocalyptic literature and prophecies of the end times. You, You find them in the books of Daniel and the book of Revelation where both the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about the end of the world. But notice what Jesus says about these things. Do not be alarmed, he says. This must take place, but the end is still to come. It's hard not to be alarmed when we look around at the world and see the way that that things are going. Not just wars and rumors of wars, but divisions even amongst our own citizens. It's bad enough that we have nation against nation, but even within our own nation, we're at war with one another. Black against white, white against black, rich against poor, poor against rich, Republican against Democrat, liberal against conservative. And then you add in the ever-increasing natural disasters, droughts, wildfires, earthquakes, hurricanes. And then you add on top of that the pandemics, COVID-19 and the Delta variant, and whatever comes along after that. It's hard not to be alarmed and wonder what God might be up to in all of this. And it's easy to read all of these as signs of the end times. Much of it lines up with what we see in, in one prophecy after another, And yet Jesus says to his disciples and to us, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. That's not to say that we're not in the end times. In fact, it's to say that we are in the end times and that we have been in the end times ever since the first coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus names the things that, that we already read in Mark 13:1 through 8 wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines. But that's not the end of the passage. The teaching goes on for all of the rest of chapter 13. In the next verses, Jesus warns the disciples that they will be handed over to councils, they will be beaten in synagogues, they will be taken before governors and kings. All of these things would take place within that first generation of Christians, Indeed, even the emperor in Rome would have the word of the gospel proclaimed to him within just a few decades. All of the signs that Jesus pointed to, signs that that the end is coming, they're all things that took place within the first few decades following his resurrection and ascension, including the destruction of the temple, which everyone knew was a sign that the end is near. No wonder the first generation of Christians expected that the second coming of Christ would take place during their lifetimes. No wonder they were more than a little confused and astonished when that didn't happen and the world went on. But Jesus never talks about any of these signs as being the end of the end. Rather, he talks about them as being merely the beginning of the end. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs, he says in verse 8. In other words, the end times began in the first century A.D., and they continue unto this day. When the end times come to an end, nobody knows. Jesus himself said nobody knows, not even himself. Anybody who claims to have some knowledge about that is either misguided or lying. And there have been any number of them throughout the centuries. Jesus knew that there would be. He said to look out for them, not to be led astray by them. Anybody who claims to have knowledge about how and when everything will come to an end, when Jesus himself says no one on earth can know that, well, that's a pretty clear sign of a false prophet. Don't be led astray. Are we in the end times now? Yes, I would say we are in the end times But that doesn't mean it will happen during our lifetime. We've been in the end times since the first century. And there have been Christians every decade since who have expected the second coming during their lifetime. To assume that we are right when 20 centuries worth of Christians have been wrong, that takes quite a bit of hubris. We don't know if it will happen in our lifetime or in another century or in another 20 centuries from now. But here's what we do know. We do know that it could. We do know that this world will one day be brought to an end. We do know that the end times have already begun. Indeed, they they began almost 20 centuries ago, and they could end at any time. It could happen before we even get home from church today. If I stood up here and told you that you don't need to be concerned about that, that's not going to happen. I'd be everybody, every bit as much of a false prophet as if I told you that it was going to happen this day or, or this lifetime. Be aware, says Jesus. Keep awake, says Jesus. Be ready at any moment. These signs that Jesus points to, he calls them the beginning of the birth pangs. The beginning of the birth pangs. I've never experienced literal birth pangs myself. Thank God. But but whether you've ever given birth or not, you you can understand the analogy. The, The pains that a woman feels when she is in labor are excruciating, but they are temporary. And they end in a birth, they end in joy. It's necessary to endure the pain of the labor for the sake of the new life about to be born. That is what Jesus says all of the pains that we endure in this world are about. The world is at war, and sometimes we have war even within our own homes. We, we suffer natural disasters, and, and disease runs rampant. Sin takes hold and turns nation against nation, and, and child against parent. The faithful are persecuted, but all of these are but labor pains as we await the birth of the new heavens. And the new earth. The pain of labor can be excruciating at times, and yet we are able to endure it because we know that it is temporary and that it will give way to God's kingdom come on earth, even as it is in heaven. We are empowered to persist in faith because we know that the pain of labor is necessary for the sake of the kingdom glory that is about to be realized in its fullness and perfection. A kingdom where, as the book of Revelation says, there is no temple, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is the temple not made with stones that can be toppled, not even the largest stones in the world, but eternal in the heavens. This is the temple that will stand forever. Thanks be to God. I invite you to stand as you are able and join in singing our closing hymn How Firm a Foundation. be alarmed. Our hope is not in this world, but in the kingdom of God. The pains and troubles of this world are temporary. The glory of the kingdom is eternal. Go with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.